Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. You have to be conscious of the power that words hold. And unfortunately, the N-word is probably the most powerful word, the most powerful single word in the English language. Not just because of the history behind it, but because of the present day realities. This is Nate. My name is Nate Sanders. I'm 16 years old and I'm a Sec 5 student. Sec 5 is the final year of high school in Quebec. Nate is in his graduating year. Sherry, Doc Project producer Sherry OKK, she first met Nate back in October when a debate was blowing up. A debate about a word. That word. Yeah, earlier this school year, there were many public discussions here about the N-word. It all started after a university professor in Ottawa was disciplined for using it. And that sparked outcry here in Quebec. 579 professors, almost entirely Quebec francophones, have signed an open letter supporting her. Politicians and columnists started weighing in, talking about freedom of expression in academic settings. In uh, places like universities, you have to be able to have a debate about everything. Then many people started debating it, often people who did not seem to understand the power of the word. And then many black Quebecers started speaking out, trying to explain it. And I don't see it as a fight for academic freedom. I see it as a fight to continue to dehumanize black people and black voices. But there was one group that Sherry felt was missing from the conversation. Sherry works with a lot of teens. She even has a CBC podcast for teens called Mic Drop. And she started thinking, What are kids and teens thinking and feeling about this? Because I know that the reason the word is so powerful in many cases is because Black people first hear it as kids. It's used as a weapon against you. Understandably, a lot of young people don't want to talk about it. But Nate, he did. And he says when it comes to the N-word, there is no debate. A lot of people think it's okay to say this word or sing this word because they don't mean it in a disrespectful way. But the issue is, if we are asking you not to say this word, out of respect, just about respect, you don't have to agree with my reasons why I don't think it should be said, but just respect me enough not to say it. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, you'll be meeting two teenagers whose lives are highly politicized, where other people talk about and debate the things they're living through, but where these teenagers rarely get to say what they think. What makes me so willing to share this personal story is the hope that it'll help someone. It's the hope that someone who's in the position that I used to be in will know that they're not alone. 
Coming up, Dawson is 19 and trans. He identifies as male, uses male pronouns. But embracing this identity has meant losing his right to the other core aspect of who he is, the best ringette goalie in Quebec. Ringette was one of my biggest fears when I was, quote-unquote, coming out. There was no person before me that I had seen gone through a process of transitioning and playing ringette. So really, it was just this open-ended question for me of, what am I going to do? But first, Nate. This is a story about the power of words, how they break us down, how they build us up, who gets to have a voice. And when that word, the N-word, the embodiment of racism, set out to break him, this 16-year-old found power in other words, books, and his own voice. A voice that is already impacting the people around him. Like Sherry. I've interviewed a lot of people, and I've had many conversations about racism. But talking to Nate brought up some things I really didn't see coming. Sherry will take it from here. Can you tell me about when you first started to learn about racism? I learned about racism a very long time ago. Um, I want to say that I was maybe in kindergarten or in the first grade. And I remember talking to my dad and my mom and they were telling me, look, you don't have as many chances as these white kids. And they had sat me down to tell me... um, the difference between my reality and the reality of my white peers or the white people I saw in movies or TV shows. And they told me that because I was black, I already had one strike on me. So because of that, that meant that I couldn't do the same things or say the same things or play the same games as my white friends. Because for them, they could get away with it. For me, I couldn't. I can't break the rules the same way they did. I can't be disrespectful or, or talk in class the way they did because it was different for them and it was different for me. And they were telling me and my older brother, who's only a year older, and they were telling us this uh, at the dinner table. But yeah, that was the first time that I learned about racism. Nate was about five or six years old, and he says at that age, he didn't get upset about his parents' warning. He just accepted it as fact he would face different rules and different consequences. He didn't realize how difficult that reality would be until he started living it. Growing up in a majority white neighborhood and going to a majority white school, living at home was one world, and then once you go out anywhere outside of home, whether it's a store, whether it's to hang out with your friends, whether it's to school, it's like you're living in a completely different world. No one looked like me, no one... Uh, act like me, no one spoke like me, no one thought like me, you know, and no one had parents that looked like mine, and no one had parents that came from a different country. My mom is from Colombia, and my dad is from Texas. So at home, we spoke uh, Spanish. My mom's brown, but she's not black. My dad is black. Me, I identify as a, uh, as a black male, because, um, all my features um, from uh, from the top of my head to the tip of my toes are, are from my dad. You know, uh, when people see me, they don't think that I'm, uh, that I'm Latino or that I'm brown. They think that I'm black. 
the first time that I had experienced racism personally was when I was in grade two. I remember being with some of my white friends at the time and we were outside on the playground and an older kid had come up to me and he had told me, you are um, an N-word. I have no clue what grade he was in. I had no clue what, uh, what his name was. In fact, even even now, uh, the the picture of his face or what he was wearing that day escapes me. And what really stands out to me in that moment was him saying those words. And I remember feeling powerless in that moment because my father has always told me, look, if anyone ever calls you this word, you don't stand for it. You don't take it. But I'm in this position where this kid is twice my size. He's older than me. So in my head, he has more authority than me. And I'm there and I heard this word and I try to tell my friends, but they don't understand. It was lonely in that moment, not having friends who could relate. Nate doesn't blame them. He says they didn't understand the power of that word. And they were young. But so is Nate. Difference is, he had no choice. Racism wasn't something he could avoid. As I got older, as I got bigger, people saw me as more of a threat. And because of that, I was labeled as an aggressor or... um, a delinquent, more or less, despite me not engaging in any uh, any bad behavior or any um, any criminal activity, I was already given this label, and because of that, I had various incidents. For example, one outside of school that I really remember was me being in the parking lot of a hair salon, and I was with my older brother. We were walking by some of these cars, just walking outside, and this guy had called the police on us and was saying that we were trying to rob his car or that we were trying to break into his car. When in reality, we were walking back and forth on the sidewalk that was outside of the salon, waiting for a month to get her hair done. And that was one incident which at the time, I didn't attribute to, oh, this is because we're black. But I remember once time had passed and once we talked about it with our parents and with more people we had come to realize look this had happened because we are black because we are black it's like this man had seen us and you know he labeled us as criminal and because of that he called the police and he wanted to make sure that we weren't going to rob his car that we weren't going to break into his car when this happened nate and his brother were still just kids in elementary school so by grade six He's been called the N-word. He's had an adult call the police on him while he's waiting for his mom outside the hair salon. And he keeps hearing other kids using the N-word. It had become a trend for white kids or any kid to just go around and say this word and just say it because they, they, they knew it was offensive. And because it was offensive, they, they thought it was funny to say and to call out and really blurt it out uh, all the time. And that's when it was, uh, that's when I think it was at its peak, that word being used in elementary school was in those years, like grade five, grade six. Hearing that word over and over and over again and having my own run-ins with racism or problems because of my race. And of course, being in a all-white environment in an all-white school where everyone was white. 
took a toll on my mental health, my self-image, and especially my self-confidence. And by the end of grade 6, I had no sense of self. And I had reached a point where in my head, because of everything that had happened, because of hearing this word, I had reached a conclusion that being black was negative. That if I could, I would wish to be white. That if I could, I would try to act white or talk white or do things that I saw my white friends doing because that was, in my head, positive. And I think that's the effect um, That's the effect it had on me in elementary school. I never told anyone that, oh, yeah, I think white is better. I think that I should be white or, you know, I never talked to anyone about that because I felt so much shame for being black. And uh, I was dealing with a lot of self-hate at the time. And I think that's the that's the biggest thing, you know, because, of course, um, all, all my experiences, all my everything had led up to me believing that white is better, white is good and black is bad. And because of that. I was so angry at myself. You know, I was like, I shouldn't be this way. I used to suck in my lips. Um, I think it started in grade seven. I used to like suck in my lips so they appeared smaller. And I used to, before every day at school, I would wear, uh, while my hair was wet, I would like straighten it as much as I could and then like comb it out and then I would wear um, a baseball cap or a hat of some sorts to like make it flat and like straight because I thought these were good things. It, it, it destroyed me. I was so depressed. I was so, I was in such a bad position where I, I, I got nothing done. At that time I had no friends. I had gained a lot of weight. I wasn't talking to anyone. I would go to school, shut my mouth, and try to be as white as possible and then go back home. That sounds so hard. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, it was definitely difficult, you know, because, um, hey, give me a second, just because. Take your time. Sorry, it's a bit, uh. Sometimes it's difficult to talk about because it makes me sad, you know? <sighs> all right, perfect. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Nate. I'm sorry that this, all this happened. Uh, it's okay. It's not your fault, you know? And I think um, it's important for black kids to know that if they're going through this or if they're having, like, the same thoughts of, oh, black is bad, like, at, at when I was at that time, I wish that I had someone that could have been like, look, I went through the same thing. I know what's happening with you. And like, kind of like, help me out of it. Because it was a really, really terrible, awful period in my life. Thank you so much for doing this, Nate, because I, I know it's hard and I, I don't want to make you suffer by by telling the story again. So I hope that you're comfortable um, telling it all. Yeah, 100%. You know, and I think... Honestly, I think that stuff like this, like telling people about this experience and talking about it is, is uh, I think in this case is, is healing, you know? I think um, 
after the fact that uh, after I'd gone through that period in my life, um, it took me a long time to start talking about it, you know. Yeah, I do know it's hard to talk about. And at 16, I certainly wasn't ready to talk about my experiences with racism. For me, it started in kindergarten. I was walking home from school and a group of kids, other five-year-olds, followed me, shouting the N-word while also spitting at me the whole way. Just like Nate, I didn't say a thing. I just kept walking as fast as I could. That was decades ago. I'm 30 years older than Nate. But the pain he describes, I also felt it growing up. Your lips are wrong, your hair is wrong. It's all too familiar. Listening to Nate, I just can't stop thinking, how is this still happening decades later? As a journalist, as a black woman, racism doesn't surprise me. But as Nate shares his story, I realize that the kid in me is devastated. I got through those days by believing things would be different by now. But I keep hearing story after story of kids and teens living through the same pain. It feels like I've traveled back in time. And then something happens that hits even closer to home. Nate has been recording himself while we talk on the phone so that he can send it to me as an audio file. When it arrives, I see the name of that audio file. It's the street address where it was recorded. And that's when I realize Nate lives on the very same street I lived on when I started school. My address was 473, his 501. My first encounters with racism happened in that same neighborhood. So where you live is where I lived when I first experienced racism. Like, what did, what goes through your mind when you hear that? Shock me. You don't expect things to be as bad as they were in the past. And to think that these events happened right next to me, happened in my backyard, it happened right in in my neighborhood. I could walk down the street and I might pass some of the locations where this abuse took place. That's what's really surprising about it. For a moment, we both wonder how so little could have changed. But then Nate tells me for him, everything did change in grade nine. In grade nine, I had discovered uh, Malcolm X. My aunt had bought me Malcolm X's autobiography for Christmas. I was reading a lot of books and I, I got to reading uh, his biography. And the way he expressed himself, the way he put together his words, the way the way everything was was described and him talking about when he used to straighten his hair and all these all these things that I, he was saying in this book really affected me profoundly and for the first time i was reading someone who was pro black because the rest of my life the things that i was seeing and the, my experiences were anti black So for the first time, I was reading something that was all for black people that was describing, in a way, how I was feeling. There's a part in the book where he talks about going through a dictionary 
under black and under white, there are a bunch of definitions. And under black, it's like dirty, sullen, uh, void of light. And then in the white, it's pure, good, clean. And I remember I started listening to his speeches on Spotify. And I would listen to them day in and day out. You know, I, uh, I would go to school on the bus, listen to his speeches. I would go home on the bus, listen to his speeches. Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin to such extent that you bleach to get like the white man? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? Who taught you to hate the race? Hearing the way that he expressed himself and his ideas really, really jump-started my transformation from thinking black is negative, black is bad, black is sullen or dirty, like Malcolm has seen in, in the dictionary, to me believing that black was powerful, that black was beautiful, and that black was enough, and that black was more than enough. And my mindset had changed from, I want to be white, I should be white, white is good, to thinking, I'm happy I'm black. I'm proud that I'm black. I wouldn't want to be anything else but black. So really, it was Malcolm X, it was his biography and his speeches that really got me out of that time in my life. That's when Nate started looking for more books by black authors. He told me about some of the titles he's read so far. The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Policing Black Lies by Canadian author Robin Maynard. It made me think about... I guess the the education system here in Canada and where, in my opinion, it lacks, you know, I think in English, in English class or French classes, we read so many books, at least four, maybe five books a year. Yet, despite that, not a single one of those books have been written by any black authors. Not a single one of those books had a black main character. After reading the autobiography of Malcolm X on his own in grade 9, Nate started reflecting back on books he'd been assigned to read at school that same year. And it brought something up for him. How the N-word had been used in class. When reading To Kill a Mockingbird, no one was calling anyone the N-word except for characters in a fictional book. Still hearing that word, it's like reliving... A sort of trauma automatically when I heard that word the first thing that comes in my in my mind is anti-black black is negative so hearing that word in a classroom setting in my case was like reinforcing it was like a reminder black is bad you're black black is bad you're bad it was like a constant reminder it was like it was like a breeze in the night when, when you leave your window open and, and you could feel it at your feet getting cold. That's what it was like. You're black, you're bad, you're an N-word. And despite not being called that word, it was like reliving that trauma of being called it or, or seeing it written or hearing people say it and laugh in your face about it. It was like reliving that. Nate says there was a brief discussion in class about why it shouldn't be used, but he didn't feel comfortable to say much at the time. 
And during that class, it wasn't students saying the N-word, it was the teacher. A teacher who he actually had, and still has, a lot of respect for. She was teaching the book because it was in the curriculum. She was teaching the book because for her entire career, this was the way it was done. She wasn't saying this word to be a racist. This teacher, in my heart, and I know this in my heart, is in no way a racist individual. Out of every single teacher I've had, this was the one teacher where in her classroom, I felt like just a person. You know, because I feel like in other classrooms or in other times, I feel as if I'm made to be acutely aware that I'm a black person. I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. I'm made to feel acutely aware of my race at all times. But in her classroom, and despite saying this word, she was the one teacher that treated the black students like people. She spoke to us like people. She wasn't weird about it. She, she, she didn't make any, any offhand comments. And I'm very close to this teacher. Nate thought about telling his teacher how he felt hearing her use the N-word, but he was way too nervous. He was afraid something bad might happen, that she wouldn't get it, or worse, she wouldn't try to get it, proving his feelings didn't matter, and ruining a relationship with a teacher he really liked. So he said nothing, but he kept thinking about it and thinking about it. Six months later, the following school year, Nate decided to speak up. He'd read about Malcolm X by then and was feeling more confident. Even though he was still very nervous about confronting a teacher, Nate says he reached a point where he had to say something. The conversation went surprisingly well. She had told me it was not her intent to say anything to offend anyone or to make anyone relive their trauma. But the issue is the reception of such a word, the reception of the N-word, does do that it does make people relive their trauma it does dehumanize them further than they have already been dehumanized so despite her intent of the word being different from those who were calling you the n-word or calling me the n-word the result the reception was just as damaging and we had a very long conversation uh, about an hour maybe a bit more And she had asked me, can we talk more? You know, I want to be more understanding. I want to know. And she she had even asked me, which something that made me very, very happy about. So she had asked me, I know you read a lot of books. What do you think that we could teach in place of To Kill a Mockingbird? Or what would be better than To Kill a Mockingbird? And to me, that meant a lot because... I feel as if To Kill a Mockingbird is wildly inappropriate for what it wishes to teach. It is a The book is a classic. It is very well written. Do not get me wrong. But this book, we are told that we're being taught this book to have a better perspective of what life was like back in that time for black people and white people. Unfortunately, why I don't think it's effective in doing that is because... Who is the author and whose eyes are it from? You know, it is written 
from the perspective of a white character is written by a white author, I do not think that you can get a full image of how life was like and how life was different for black people and white people at that time from the eyes of those who were oppressing the oppressed. Nate hasn't decided yet which book should replace To Kill a Mockingbird, but these conversations he's been having with his teacher have already led to change. She recently told him she no longer uses the N-word in class. She teaches To Kill a Mockingbird differently now. For Nate, that's a win. Changing one person's mind may seem small, but it's huge. When I was in high school, I never would have confronted a teacher on anything related to race. That Nate did that successfully at 16 is striking. I'm moved by how quickly Nate, despite his wounds, has already found his voice, and he's using it to call for change. Nate says there's a long way to go, especially when it comes to education. I was taught that slavery in Canada was next to non-existent. That's not the truth. I wasn't taught about Canada's history with segregation. I was taught about the U.S.'s one. We had one page in our history textbook. Uh, of our four years in history, we had one page on black history. And that was about the United States. About segregation. One single page. Apart from that, it was up to independent organizations separate from the school, separate from the curriculum to come in to teach us about black history. When one of those organizations came to Nate's school last year, author Akila Newton gave him a copy of her book, Big Dreamers, the Canadian Black History Activity Book for Kids. It's full of stories and games focused on black Canadian role models. This was the first time that I had seen a piece of black Canadian literature that had an ensemble of black Canadian excellence, you know, and seeing what she had done and seeing this collection was just like, wow, these are people that black kids, that black youth can look up to and go, wow, that's me. I can see myself in that position, whether it was a sports player, a musician or a lawyer, because I think oftentimes black kids are expected to look up to people that don't look like them, people that don't, that fundamentally cannot relate to them, that cannot understand them. Whereas these black Canadian figures, it was empowering. You know, in, in much of the same way that um, I felt powerless uh, when I had initially uh, been called the N-word back in grade two, seeing this book full of black Canadian excellence had the opposite effect. Learning about the Canadians featured in the book made such a difference for Nate he decided to write his own book about black excellence in Montreal as a school project. He's been reaching out to black community leaders and other black Montrealers from all walks of life. I want to show a variety of black excellence. You know, I want to show you could be a journalist, you could be really anything that you want to be, in, and that's what really made me interested in including you in my project. And after I interviewed Nate, he asked to interview me. So my next question is, uh, what was it like for you growing up here in Montreal? You know, tell us like, uh, just tell us about, you know, like uh, some, some places you remember, you know, some, anything, the people you grew up with, uh, the environment you were, um, you were uh, in when you grew up. I would say when I was growing up, it was really challenging because mm-hmm. I was part of a family that looked very different from everyone around us. Mm-hmm. 
in the sense that my mom is white, my dad. I have a lot of pride in this project because it's getting me out there and it, it has me meeting a lot of new people that I didn't know before and st hearing stories that I never heard before and it's all about people in my community here in Montreal, people who are in reach to me that I never, even me myself, I didn't know about. Nate wants these stories he's collecting to become more than a school project. He's hoping to get his book into local libraries so other teens and kids can read it. He hopes it'll empower them the way books empowered him. And all of this is helping him heal. I feel really good. I feel a lot happier these days. I feel like I could breathe. I feel, I feel like I can make an impact. I feel important. I feel, I feel good. I feel like a like a complete human being again. I feel very proud to be black. I feel everything that has happened since that, since that period in my life where I was so broken, where I was so, so ashamed and so self-hating. Sometimes I look back on it and I can't believe that that was me. That there was a point in my life, not too long ago, where I thought black was bad and I wanted to be white. These days, I don't need to suck in my lips. I don't need to straighten my hair. I don't need to talk one way. I don't need to act one way. I don't need to listen to a certain type of music. I can express myself in the way that I wish to express myself without being ashamed of it. And I still know that racism will impact me. But I've reached a point in my life where I've chosen to be more than those acts of racism or those words. I've chosen to be more than that. And to me, being more than that means being pro-black. So the way I feel about myself now, to make a long story short, is amazing. Nate Sanders. That doc was produced by Sherry Okeke. It was edited by Allison Cook with me, AC Rowe. Coming up after the break, a story about the other best game played on ice. No, not curling. I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretab. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretab. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. It's definitely a bit like meditation on the ice. You learn how to control your heartbeat, 
how to regulate your breathing. You can hear the blades that are scratching through the ice. And you can hear the speed. Being a goalie on the ice is just zoning in on exactly what's happening in front of you in order to stay on your toes and be ready to move at all times. When I'm on the ice and I have that equipment on, I'm not me anymore, I'm just a goalie who is stopping all your shots. I don't have to worry about who I am. Dawson Ovenden Beaudry is a 19-year-old ringette player. He lives in Montreal. In 2019, he was, statistically, the best goalie in his league. Ringette isn't just a sport for Dawson. It is a huge part of who he is. But for Dawson to truly become himself, he's had to risk losing the sport he lives for. It was New Year's Eve. I was at my house, and I fully just just broke out into a panic attack. I felt really tense, like my throat was closing. And I called my mom, and I said, I don't know what's happening. And she said, okay, I'm going to come home, and we'll figure it out. Dawson was in his bed with the covers over his head. And through his tears, he said, I'm trans. We just lay there for a while in order for him to breathe deeper. In the days that followed, one of the largest questions I had was, what would become of Ringette? I knew that that relationship might be in peril. Dawson's relationship with Ringette was in peril because Ringette is a sport that was invented specifically for women. Back in 1963, two men in northern Ontario created the game in response to women being, shall we say, discouraged from playing hockey. But these guys thought girls should have a winter ice sport too. And so, Ringette was born. While the untrained eye might see Ringette as basically hockey, but with a ring instead of a puck and a straight stick instead of a curved one, there are a lot of differences. Ringette is faster, more fluid. Some of the rules are actually more similar to basketball than hockey. There's a shot clock that creates quick turnarounds between teams. There's more passing than hockey. Also, you do not body check in ringette. There is no intentional physical contact between players. Of course, it happens on occasion, but you can get taken off the ice. I could go on. Over the years, ringette has largely remained a sport that's defined and defended for being female. It's a sport that female players value for its competitiveness and its community. But times have changed since 1963. And as times change, new questions arise. To state the obvious, the story you're about to hear is not the first one about a trans athlete. On the surface, the debate that often happens about trans people in sports is about strength and physicality. A trans woman who's grown up with the bone density and muscle mass of male biology, or a trans man bulking up as he starts taking testosterone. The debate usually comes down to whether the player should compete with a men's team or division or a women's. 
which is where, in Dawson's case, with Ringette, things get more complicated. So Dawson, a 19-year-old, trying to play his favorite sport, he exists in the middle of this debate. Here's how he sees it. I first learned how to skate when I was about like four or five. And then I started figure skating, actually. Figure skating is about like elegance and technique. I was just the fastest little child and I would just spin down the ice and I was like the Tasmanian devil. I would just like wreck anything in my way and just barrel down the ice. Uh, Was it elegant? No. (laughs) Clearly it wasn't the sport for me. At first, ringette was just something I did after school. I started with an inner city team that was purely recreational. We did not have matching jerseys. We did not have matching anything, actually. We just showed up and we put on shared equipment. We taped it on and we got on the ice. I was always very inwardly competitive, competitive with myself. I wanted to go faster and I always wanted to get better. I would look up YouTube videos of hockey goalies and how they move, and I would try to replicate it on the ice just by memory. Eventually, I went to a suburban team to play more competitively. And I remember showing up to the first game and we were playing against the Gloucester Devils. We got on the ice and it was something that I had never seen before. This team was identical. It was copy-paste of the same person times 14. They all had matching jerseys, of course. Then they had matching yellow helmets. And I swear to God, they had matching hair. It was dirty brown, braided to the middle of their back. It was terrifying as, as a goalie because then you couldn't tell any of the players apart. They were all the same person. <laughs> Dawson, easily the best goalie I've ever played with. And I've played with some really, really outstanding goalies. My name is Brooke Murray and I played with Dawson for one year. He was extremely sought after by other teams He's always putting himself in front of the ring, no matter what. Not a hand, not a foot. It's always his whole body gets in front of the ring. When he slides to the other side to stop, it reminds me of, like, Carey Price. As a goalie, he saved us many times in games, many times. He was willing to take anything on his shoulders, which often he had to do. My name is Don Goods and I coached Dawson for a number of years. I took him from being a figure skater to being a ringette goalie. Dawson wasn't just a team player on the ice, he was also a team player off of the ice. He would be the one in the dressing room before a difficult game. He would give the team like a motivational speech. I think we were famous for starting games late because of too many motivational speeches. I would have to yell at them, okay, that's enough. (laughs) My assigned gender at birth was female. So I was born with, you know, female chromosomes and, and female secondary sex characteristics. 
I used to say to the kids in the schoolyard, they'd be like, are you a boy or a girl? I'd be like, I'm a giraffe. I would always wear uh, basketball shorts, no matter the time of year, even if it was winter, a graphic t-shirt with a tie or bow tie and a top hat. And then sometimes I would wear suspenders with that, sometimes leg warmers if I just really felt snazzy. I really just went with whatever I thought looked cool. Was it necessarily cool? No, not whatsoever. I would only shop in the boys section and I would turn around and ask my mom, do you think anybody will notice that I'm wearing boys clothes? Because I knew that those clothes weren't for me. Around the point of like puberty, um, among my friends and stuff, you could start to see the physical differences between people's bodies. And I started to notice that I didn't really fit in with the rest of the girls. I didn't look like the rest of the girls. It was only at about the age of 16 that I really went into depth with questioning my identity. Was I trans? Would I feel more comfortable um, changing my name? And so I went online and basically did a pronoun generator. And what you did was you entered your name that you wanted to try and your pronouns that you wanted to try. And originally my mom wanted to name me Dawson. And so I put in, you know, Dawson and he, him, and it created sentences like, we're going to Dawson's house for his birthday. Or I saw Dawson the other day, he is doing well. But then I kind of panicked about it because I was like, oh shit, this might be true. And then I shut my computer and I went to bed. I started to have panic attacks and I couldn't understand why. My heart rate would go super fast. I would be hyperventilating. My limbs would be shaking and I would be feeling numb because of the lack of oxygen in my brain. There were a couple times where I blacked out just because of the lack of oxygen in my brain. I was like, why is my body doing this? I decided that I wanted to socially and medically transition. I thought, I'm feeling complete shit right now. I don't think that I can take being this person that I'm not anymore. If I make this step to being who I really am, then maybe I'm gonna feel better. I invested in a chest binder, and essentially what it is, is it looks kind of like a tank top, but what it does is it compresses your breast tissue, and so it makes your chest appear flatter. And then later, I started taking testosterone, and I started to look a lot more male. Ringette was one of my biggest fears when I was, quote-unquote, coming out. I was playing and I was coaching goalies and I was refing. It brought me so much joy. And there was no person before me that I had seen gone through a process of transitioning and playing ringette. The reality is there are no male teams in Quebec. So really it was just this open-ended question for me of what am I going to do? How can I continue playing this game I love? I felt like 
if I told people, it would change their perception of me and they would think that I'm a completely different person when I was the exact same person. Around the same time, I moved to a different team. When the season began again, I figured that I would do it as a boy. So you have to fill out your registration online. And I, I didn't even tell my mom that I was doing this. Um, but I was registering for myself. And then it says you put in your gender. And I put male. And I sent it in. I was called over at the beginning of one of the first practices. One of the members of the association said, look, like we know that you signed up as male and we want you to leave the room and we're going to talk to your team. We want to make sure that your team is comfortable with it. They weren't like telling me, we want to make sure that you're comfortable. It was, we want to make sure that your team is comfortable with you playing. I went and I, and I got dressed and I left the room and then they all came out on the ice and then a member of the association pulled me over. She said, they're fine with you playing, but we suggest that you get changed in the washroom as to not make anybody feel uncomfortable. And that was it. Did they get my pronouns and name correctly all the time? No, but they knew. I started feeling kind of uncomfortable walking in and out of the arenas. There was this one game and this team was losing pretty badly and they were pretty upset about it. And there was a parent in the stands who started yelling, kind of like, there's a boy on the ice, like, ref. Ref, check, there's a boy on the, there's a boy, the goalie's a boy, like yelling and like very aggressively. I felt really scared. I kept on playing and I suppressed everything that I was thinking in that moment. I focused on what I needed to do, blocking out all of the noise, tracking the ring, trying to focus on the present moment. And so we finish the game. We, we have to shake hands after the game. And I could hear the other team, oh, I told you it was a dude. Oh, it is a dude. Like, nah, nah. And I smiled. I, I shook their hands and I got off the ice. We got back in the dressing room and, and I had just played this great game and I had just, we had just won and I was there and I just was almost catatonic. Uh, the assistant coach, she said, look, this other team is seems to be really upset that Dawson played and seems to be like really in our faces. If anybody asks you, your goalie is a girl. So I was like, wait, what? I said, no, that's, no, your goalie isn't a girl. Why do we need to pretend this? And she had said, well, you know, it's to, to get out of here and like not make a scene. And I, I was just like, well, I'm not the one making a scene. I'm not the one who's causing any of these issues. So I don't want you to lie and say that your goalie is a girl. Like, no. Some players stuck around with me and we walked out of the dressing room together so that I wouldn't get attacked. And I walked right out of there and, and I walked straight into the car and 
I remember um, crying a lot. I was, I was like, I hate this. I don't want to live my life like this. Ringette Quebec does not have a written policy on gender. So in the summer of 2019, I sent an email to Ringette Quebec. Essentially, I like poured my heart out into it. And I had said, um, I'm trans and I feel unsafe. And I would like an acknowledgement from the association saying that like, I belong there and that I can play and it would make me feel more secure in, in terms of like facing these other teams. I didn't receive a response for about a month or so. And I thought to myself, okay, well, if they didn't answer, maybe it's fine. And I'm just going to continue playing and that's going to be it. And then in August, it was actually the day after my birthday, they sent me an email back. Bonjour, vous pouvez continuer à jouer en tant qu'homme dans la bonne division mixte ou masculine. Vous ne pouvez pas jouer dans une équipe féminine. So essentially, they were like, if you identify as male, you need to play in a male category, which doesn't exist. The response was heartbreaking to me. No one was on my side. I felt like maybe I am delusional and I really don't belong here. When I first got told that I couldn't play, I didn't know any of the laws. So I reached out to a lawyer and he wrote a formal notice to Ring at Quebec that basically said, what you're doing is against human rights. They never responded. And I said, you know what? I'm going to continue playing until <laughs> they freaking drag me off the ice. And then in November, I played a game. And after the game, my coach pulled me aside. Basically, he said, we have got a notice from Ring at Quebec that says that if you continue playing, they're going to disqualify the entire team. And so I decided that there was only one choice for me. I needed to stop and my team could continue playing without me. I do remember like leaving the arena, just feeling awful, knowing that like I had just played my last game without knowing it. The time following that was incredibly difficult for me. I was still coaching. I was still holding on to what I had left of the sport. Watching them play and being on the bench and, and you know, I, I just wanted to be on the ice. I wanted to be the one playing. It felt like I had just been fighting and fighting and fighting and I had finally lost. It wasn't like I was losing an argument. It was, I was losing a part of myself. And that's a really hard thing to mourn. How do you mourn yourself? I have no idea. I, I, I still am.
as a defense, I try to forge a really strong relationship with the goalie. And I think that it would not have been the same conversation if Dawson was an untalented goalie. But because he's a boy and he's trans and he's the number one goalie in the league, they see it as unfair because perhaps some inherent sexism, boys are better than girls, boys are stronger than girls, all of these kind of assumptions that take away from Dawson's talent as a goalie and focus on his gender. Dawson was an excellent goalie long before he came out. And there are quiet transgender ringette players in ringette that still exists on teams that I play against that are not publicly out or have not changed their official gender status. And so they can exist in ringette and they can play and no one questions them. A lot of the arguments are that testosterone makes it easier for you to gain muscle. Um, And I've definitely noticed that, that it's easier to gain muscle. Do I think that muscle equals a stronger player? No. If we were doing arm wrestling, maybe. But when you're playing a technique sport like ringette, the fact that you can gain muscle easier doesn't really matter. What matters is that how you play the sport. I think that a lot of people believe that there is a value in keeping ringette just for girls. I think that a lot of people value the space it gives young girls to play and develop their skating skills and wear hockey skates and all of these things. But ringette's origins are about gender equality. And now it's become a symbol of exclusion in the sports world. You know, and I don't want ringette to become that because I think that it's so good for kids. It's so good for adults because it demands so much more teamwork than a sport like hockey demands. If I think of ringette, I think of Dawson. Dawson is ringette. If someone said to me, why shouldn't Dawson just play hockey? Well, it would be like saying to someone who's played tennis their whole life, why don't you just play badminton from now on? They're two different sports. You know, ringette is dying out in Montreal. And ultimately, the ringette world is going to have to answer the question, what if boys want to play? You know, there has to be more options than just say, okay, let's divide it by gender, let's not divide it by gender. It seems to me that there has to be more nuance. Still to this day, which is like two years later, I still have a hard time processing everything that happened. I don't think that we should have these divisions of like a women's team, a male team, whatever. This gender binary is simply a social construct. So there are many different genders that don't fit into male or female. And so what? They, they just don't play sports. I want everybody to have a chance to play. You know, I'm 19 years old. This is a lot of talk for someone who hasn't had much uh, life experience, but that's what I want. I'm going to continue coaching, and I'm going to continue being a part of this community, even if it's breaking me down to my core. I'm teaching them how I want the sport to be. I'm teaching them to love the sport and to allow others to love it too. Dawson of Ndinbodri. His story was produced by Tali Abacassis and Mira Bertwintonic, 
We reached out to Ringette Quebec, inviting them to comment on Dawson's situation and the situation for trans players in general. Florent Gravel, former president of Ringette Quebec, responded by phone in French. This is a summarized translation of his comments. Dawson's situation is unfortunate, and Ringette Quebec understands it's very unpleasant for him, but that him no longer playing Ringette is his personal choice. In Quebec, there are three leagues, masculine, feminine, and mixed. Ringette Quebec's position is that Dawson can continue to play as long as he stays in the masculine or mixed leagues. Finally, Gravel says that Ringette Quebec does not have a policy on transgender players and does not plan on creating one. Ringette Canada, meanwhile, does have a trans inclusion policy. Natasha Johnston, Ringette Canada's executive director, stressed the importance of inclusivity in the sport, but she said they cannot impose their policy on provincial counterparts. The masculine and mixed league Gravel referred to are considered garage. That means they're non-competitive and do not play at the championship level. So earlier, when Dawson said there are no men's teams in Quebec... What he meant is that there are no championship-level men's teams, which is the level he plays at. Because of COVID-19, there is no ringette happening these days. But Dawson is now coaching two teams over Zoom as a way to keep in touch and keep up team morale. He says, I don't foresee being able to return to playing in a competitive league myself anytime soon. But I do hope to at least play in some recreational garage leagues when I can. I will continue to coach and referee as I did before, working my way up in the associations with the goal of making real systemic changes. I think there is a long fight ahead of me. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Sherry Okeke, Allison Cook, Veronica Simmons, Tanera McLean, Julia Poggle, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer, this week with Jonathan Orr. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.